Jacob Wolf Show. Monday here. Glad to join you Monday, December 5th. A lot of news to discuss happening now as I begin the show is the sentencing of Michael Avenatti in the big uh, California case, the major case which, of course, I had a role in bringing about by investigating Michael Avenatti, which was not something that I was even interested in doing at all until Michael Avenatti came after me. This is back in 2018. Michael Avenatti was involved in an incident in which a, a woman that he had been dating for about a year and a half, a lot younger than him, a, a 24-year-old woman uh, from Estonia, uh, allegedly some kind of domestic violence incident took place with her. Uh, he was arrested. Uh, California is a must-arrest state, regardless of what the woman says, but the woman was uh, interested in charges being pursued. Ultimately, in that case, the L.A. city attorney, uh, who was in charge of, of, of overseeing that case, did not file charges, and you can only imagine why that might be. But th the importance of this incident is that Michael Avenatti blamed me for it. He said it was a uh, rigged situation, that it was a uh, situation that I caused to take place. I don't know exactly how that's possible, of course, when he was dating this woman uh, long before even people had heard of him. Of course, it didn't take place, but he said that I was responsible. He blamed me. He named me, and he said that he was going to take me down, and he threatened me, and he threatened uh, my family, and he threatened my friends. And so in that situation, given what a volatile person he was, given what a corrupt person he was, and given the resources that he had at the time, millions of dollars of ill-gotten funds— the support of the Democrat Party establishment. People try to erase this from history. People try to forget this. But Michael Avenatti was at the peak of being celebrated by the Democrats. He was meeting with Bill Clinton. He was much like Sam Bankman-Fried before Sam Bankman-Fried was ultimately uh, you know, faced with the downfall, but even still is being lauded in some degrees. Michael Avenatti, in the fall of 2018 was considered to be a Democrat frontrunner for the 2020 election. There's the famous clip of Brian Stelter that people play talking about Avenatti as a presidential contender, but people forget now that it's been four years, uh, four years plus since that time, that it wasn't just that one clip. There was a lot of discussion about Michael Avenatti becoming president of the United States. He was visiting Iowa. There were straw polls. And he was, in fact, the front runner. And so given that and given his threats to take me down and, and given the geographical proximity to me, uh, at the time that this all began taking place, Avenatti went to the same gym that I went to. I mean, I want to underscore this. We both went to Equinox in Irvine, California. Shortly into the situation, Avenatti moved uh, a little bit north to Los Angeles, $11,000 a month penthouse apartment there. That's where the uh, domestic violence situation took place. But when it was first kind of beginning, when he kind of became aware of me before the incident, he was going to the same gym as me. He had an office down the road from me, uh, his office in Newport Beach, an entire floor dedicated to his one-man law firm, very bizarre kind of situation. So I had to investigate him. Now, there were already some claims out there about his corruption, about back taxes, about a failed uh, coffee uh, leveraged buyout of a coffee chain in Seattle that partnered with a, 
baseball player or something and and Patrick Dempsey the actor so th- there were some warning signs and as i began uh, began to to basically dig into his background it turned out that what he was running was a situation in which he was a talented uh, trial lawyer to some degree he would do personal injury cases basically ambulance chaser type cases high profile big money ambulance chaser personal injury type cases against like the county of Los Angeles, for example, or big, rich defendants who could pay out settlements. And then uh, what Michael Avenatti would do is that he would tell the client after the settlement was reached, uh, yeah, they're going to pay us soon. Here, I'll advance you $10,000 until they pay us. They're going to pay us soon. Uh, We'll see. Uh, Here's another 10 grand. Meanwhile, Avenatti had actually stolen the settlement right out of the attorney-client trust account. He did that to many people, including uh, Jeffrey Johnson, a person I identified who basically became paraplegic because he was a mentally ill guy who went to jail, went to the L.A. County Jail, basically for disorderly conduct. Um, He was having suicidal ideations. He was not treated. He leapt from, I think, three stories up in the jail, landed headfirst, broke his neck, became paralyzed, basically from the shoulders down. 90% 90% paralyzed, as, as I understand it, basically quadriplegic, more so than even paraplegic. Uh, but I think he's regained some mobility in his arms. But nonetheless, he jumps. Uh, Avenatti finds him. Avenatti sues the county. County settles for four and a half or five million bucks, and Avenatti steals the money. But that was just one case. There were many clients like this. The amounts of money range anywhere from you know, a total of $35 million to all the way up to $131 million, depending on what you count. There were charges against Avenatti that weren't even brought because they just really only had so much time with the indictment. But there's another case, for example, where he forged his his then wife's signature to steal the house out from under her, her interest in a, in a home they were building, just stole the house out from under his wife, uh, used a fraudulent notary, all of this stuff, filed it with the county recorder's office, stole a house out from under the ex-wife. So there were a lot of these kind of situations, and Michael Avenatti was was a was an unhinged guy, a delusional person, and so I had to investigate him and figure it out. Uh, somebody asked you in the chat, can you explain the Nike thing? Well, basically, uh, Avenatti alleged that Nike was paying college and even high school basketball players, uh, which is especially at the t- it was especially at the time not allowed by the NCAA, but still isn't allowed in terms of high schoolers and things like that, but. And that he knew about it, and in Zion Williams was one of them, and he was going to expose it unless and crash their stock, and he had him by the balls and all this stuff unless they paid him twenty five million dollars. And the way in which he went about it was not a question of, um, you know, somebody actually working on behalf of their client. He had in fact defrauded the client who he claimed to be representing, this travel basketball coach from California, defrauded him. And basically wanted $25 million for himself as as illegal hush money. But what made it extortion even more so is that the allegations weren't true. You see, that's what really even made it extortion. And I, and this is something that was hardly covered by the media, but I went in and did an investigation and found that Zion Williams was in fact not paid by Nike and that the most egregious incidents of this kind were being carried out in Southern California and other parts of the country by Adidas. 
Nike's major competitor. I investigated that. I figured that part out. So that was what made it even worse. So there was that case in New York. He was arrested on a charging document there. He had ripped off Stormy Daniels of her book deal money, some 250 grand or so. There was that case. I didn't know about those because those were last minute things that happened in New York, but I knew about the years of ripping off clients and the associated tax and other bank fraud involved with that that were taking place in Southern California. Again, I lived five minutes from Avenatti's office in Newport Beach. I went to the same gym that he attended for years and people would talk. Uh, there was a major Republican haven in the gym and they had an executive locker room where people would watch Fox News and people would see Trump retweeting me and they'd tell me things about Avenatti. Sometimes they were true rumors, sometimes they were not. So again, the reason we talk about this is that as we speak, for those of you just tuning in, uh, Michael Avenatti is in his sentencing hearing uh, it has been going on since about noon, and uh, it continues here. Um, the uh, sentencing here is is going to be pretty severe. And uh, I'm just looking here at the latest on this, covered by Megan uh, Cuniff. She is a, a, just a brilliantly talented reporter who has written for several different outlets, beginning at the Daily Journal, now at Law and Crime, I think. And uh, she's just tremendously talented, just an old school courtroom reporter, uh, you know, calls the balls and strikes. If you were in a courtroom situation, you would want her reporting on your case because you could count on her to do uh, an impartial and thorough job, which is so rare, so rare uh, in reporting today, in journalism today. And she has stuck with this case. She was there at the initial debtors exam hearings that I was at, uh, where this all began to get on the official public record because Avenatti had also, among other people, ripped off his former law partners for 14, 15 million bucks. They uh, won that judgment that he owed them the money. He wasn't paying it. They performed what's called the debtor's exam hearing where they get to ask about where the money might have gone. Because of the investigations that I had conducted in the area, they were armed with what precisely had gone on with Avenatti's clients. They asked him about those things on the record. And sitting uh, right behind me, uh, right over my left shoulder, was an IRS criminal investigative division uh, special, you know, agent who was there uh, taking notes, as well as a DHS money laundering investigations agent taking notes. That's how they make a lot of their cases. Just for those of you who don't know, bankruptcy is a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, always, always avoid filing bankruptcy if you can um, in situations because it's, it's not even about the credit stuff. It's just about you, you open yourself up to all kinds of unforeseen uh, legal liabilities in, in a bankruptcy situation. But let's see here. So we're, we got the sentencing table here for Avenatti here coming out. Uh, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to cover this as, as, as best I can here. Um, and I, I'm just looking here. We're going to get the sentence out here any minute. Uh, the prosecutor is now back at the lectern. Uh, this is Judge Selna presiding. Again, this is in Santa Ana, California, federal court. He's been convicted and sentenced in the other cases in New York already. A uh, total of about five and a half years, I think, in those cases in federal prison. He is in custody now. Um, this is... Uh, it's just all kind of coming together here. This is a long sentencing hearing, two hours plus. So uh, what I'm going to do, and maybe some of you in the chat can monitor this as well. Again, it's Megan Cuniff, M-E-G-H-A-N-N. -N. 
is the first name, C-U-N-I-F-F. Maybe some of you can monitor here as we continue with the show. Uh, so I'm going to I'm gonna move on from the Avenatti thing. We will probably get that sentence out sometime here during the show. But I do want to talk about uh, some other action items uh, taking place now. Uh, some pretty significant action items. Um, and, and we begin with these Twitter files and what came out of Twitter. Now, I could dive into copious amounts of detail I could read you every single email, the back, the forth. It's, it's, it's a little bit hard to parse because it is a combination of both uh, cover your ass memos combined with uh, actual criminal conspiracies taking place. And it, it surrounds essentially the Hunter Biden laptop, as you know, which Twitter took extraordinary measures to censor, to attempt to discredit, even though it was obviously real. And now that Elon Musk has taken control of Twitter, he has uh, dumped these files to a number of journalists. Uh, Matt Taibbi is one. There's a couple others. Uh, people that are considered sort of lefties, but but non-establishment and kind of down the middle lefties, which is probably the only credible thing he could have done in this situation, because what are you going to do? Give it to the Daily Caller? I mean, I, I don't even know if they have anybody who can who can do this kind of reporting there anymore. Uh, or the free beacon. I mean, it's, it's, it's conservative media doesn't even really exist. And the biggest proof of that really is that Substack now exists. And there are all these reporters who are on the left and they have said for so long that they were suppressed because of their anti-establishment views by their editors. And now they come out, they start Substacks and they're hugely successful on Substack. Uh, very few, very, very few conservatives in that category. Very few like you look at the people, the conservatives that work at the Free Beacon or they work at um, the Daily Caller. I mean, some of the sites have virtually been sentenced, out, you know, basically been censored out of existence, like the Gateway Pundit, who I wrote for for some time. And then they fired me and then they brought me back to write about Avenatti. But they were basically censored out of existence. Their links were banned. I actually broke some news at the Gateway Pundit. But these people don't you know, they cannot sink or swim on their own volition at Substack. They just, they can't because they're not thorough enough journalists usually. So that's what Elon Musk did. He released the documents. And what is really making a lot of news though, beyond uh, the documents themselves and, and what the documents themselves show, for those of you who, who haven't seen, is that everything we suspected about Twitter's censorship of the Biden laptop, of the Hunter Biden laptop, well, it's exactly correct. And before people go into minimizing uh, the fact that the documents are now out, I, I will stress that there is a big difference between assuming a story happened a certain way and actually having the provable evidence, actually seeing the emails that were exchanged, the text messages. Of course, there are many things we don't have records of, certain phone calls and things like this. So... There are a lot of items like that. A lot of items like that. Um, somebody says here, good afternoon, Jacob, as always, your show. Uh, this is MJ. Uh, what's going on with your Telegram chat? I'll look into it. I'm not sure. We had a, an influx of spam lately, and so you may have been uh, put on the spam list mistakenly by the software that manages that. But the software otherwise does a pretty good job. But I will look into it after the show uh, today. Okay, so... 
we have this proof out now. What was the most disappointing part of this story, I think, was was Trump's reaction to all of this. And there's a lot of reports out about Trump's reaction, people saying that he's calling for, uh, you know, doing away with the Constitution and and all of this kind of hyperbolic uh, summary of Trump's reaction. But I don't think you have to be hyperbolic about Trump's reaction. To me, it seems uh, pretty clear that his reaction is is a disappointing one, is, is, is almost a rather pathetic reaction to these documents coming out. And uh, he turned heads anyway over the weekend with his posts on Truth Social. You can see if you're watching live his, his post up on the screen. But here's what Trump had to say about all of this. And I can't really convey the tone of this because there's all these all caps and I'm going to do my best here for those of you listening. But he says, so with the revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception, in working closely with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democrat Party, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner, or do you have a new election? And that's what Trump said. He posed the question on Truth Social. But I will say, you know, the, the reason that this reaction from Trump, uh, to me, uh, rings so hollow is because... You have to remember something. It's not that Trump were merely a private citizen running in 2016 and that he uh, was uh, somebody who wasn't in power and was screwed out of an election. That is not the case. Donald Trump was the president of the United States. I repeat, Donald Trump was the president of the United States. It is also not the case that big tech came out of nowhere and surprised everyone by suddenly censoring this one major story at the 11th hour just before the election. It is not as though Twitter and, again, other companies did the same thing, but it's not as though they did not telegraph that they were going to do this. It's not as though they did not telegraph that. The other thing we now know is that there was uh, Mark Zuckerberg interview recently that went kind of widespread in which he said the FBI warned them that the laptop could be fake and so maybe look at it. And the, and then everybody, especially conservatives, went to blaming the FBI because, you know, there's a lot of things to blame the FBI for. And I said, you know what? First of all, this doesn't seem exactly clear to be true to me. And second of all, second of all, it's Donald Trump's FBI. And, and, and third of all, Facebook is not compelled to censor content because of vague warnings from the FBI that maybe it's not true. It's still Zuckerberg's fault, even if the FBI sent a memo or something. Again, which he hasn't released, which we haven't seen, and more likely than not doesn't exist. And I'm even more convinced that that FBI warning doesn't exist now that I have had occasion to see the Twitter files and can see that the FBI was not directing Twitter to do this censorship. They were doing it all on their own. And presumably, if they were reaching out to Facebook, they were also reaching out to Twitter. But no such evidence of that here. It was the big tech companies doing this, and uh, they were doing it on their own. They were doing it maliciously. They were doing it to suppress Republican votes. They were doing it to uh, it, it make sure that uh, Biden voters showed up who were on the fence. They were doing it to affect the outcome of the election in a fraudulent manner. Absolutely. In an absolutely fraudulent manner. Now, you know, none of these people have been criminally charged by Republican AGs around the country, like happened to myself and Jack Berkman over 
a robocall. Which, by the way, the robocall, if you've ever heard it, had to do with vote by mail, not all voting. Had to do with vote by mail, which I think, which I think now everybody has seen vote by mail is quite a disaster for all kinds of reasons, logistical reasons, integrity reasons, and all kinds of others. So maybe I was just ahead of the curve there on on that, but I think a lot of people were probably ahead of the curve. None of these people are being charged criminally. Where, where, where is the criminal indictment by the Texas AG against these Twitter executives? Where is it? Where is the, the criminal indictment by the Louisiana AG against these Twitter executives? It's not happening. Not happening at all. What about the Ohio Attorney General? I mean, he's really the one, even though he's a Republican, who at the basically demand of, of far-left Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who now is Biden's HUD director, Housing and Urban Development, uh, basically at her urging and demand, chose to come after us. But nothing. Nothing here, of course. But again, back to my original point, Trump was the president. Big tech telegraphed that they were going to do this. Donald Trump was in office for years as one of his supporters after the next were censored off of the internet. I mean, I, I take particular issue with it, of course, because I didn't really choose to become a, a Trump supporter uh, publicly in the eyes of the media and, and take in all of the flack that came with that at the scale which ended up happening. It sort of chose me. And what I mean by that is I was happy to do it. And I was out there and I was on HLN and CNN and Fox Business going into the 2016 election as the young Trump supporter. That's what they cast me as. You can hardly find this footage anymore. I have it. But you can. It's been wiped off of the internet. But I was cast that. It had no issue with it. But what happened was that Donald Trump, as president in July of early July of 2017, began retweeting my account at Jacob A. Wool on Twitter at a time when he was not retweeting essentially anyone besides perhaps the vice president, uh, the secretary of state, you know, the White House official account, stuff like that. I mean, he wasn't just retweeting anybody, but not civilians and and especially not um, especially not 19 year old uh, uh, Trump supporters, which I was at the time. But he liked my commentary, he retweeted me not once, not twice, but I think four times and replied to my tweets, would say thank you and things like this. And that obviously brought a lot of attention to me as kind of the only civilian that was being retweeted by Trump. And, and so I, I, take, I take particular issue with this because I am ultimately banned uh, in February 2019, but other people are banned first, major supporters of Trump. People like Laura Loomer, who was working on the Las Vegas story, on the ground as an investigative journalist, a Las Vegas shooting, that is. Uh, of course, Yiannopoulos was banned, I think, as early as 16 for making a joke about uh, Leslie Jones not being funny. How dare you? Alex Jones in, the, in that first wave banned. I was sort of the second wave. Uh, and he had such ample opportunity to deal with this, but... All we would get out of Trump are these tweets saying that he was monitoring the situation. And then there was one uh, White House uh, big tech censorship sort of summit that he put on, that, that Trump put on at the White House. 
in which the only people that were invited to that summit are people that were not censored. The only person that I know of that was invited that was even controversial was our good friend Ali Alexander. He was invited, but Laura Loomer was not invited. I was not invited. I wouldn't have been able to make it anyway, but I wasn't invited. Um, it, it's just it's just incredible. But otherwise, what did we hit? We had Trump doing absolutely nothing about big tech censorship. We had the Department of Justice doing nothing about these companies' anti-competitive business practices. Nothing, nothing whatsoever. And in fact, what we had was Trump meeting with Jack Dorsey and meeting with uh, the Indian woman, uh, Gadai, uh, in the Oval Office several times. We had Trump uh, having private dinners with Mark Zuckerberg and Jared Kushner several times, including, I think, in October of 2020 at the White House, several times. So his supporters, you know, the people who aren't billionaires, people that don't have the RNC to spend hundreds of millions on our legal bills, we were silenced. And it wasn't merely silencing. It was silenced and then attacked viciously. And, and that's what they do. They, they silence you first. They remove your platform. And then they attack you so that you can't respond. Because your right to be able to respond to allegations, whether they're brought in an official setting or an unofficial setting or whether they're brought by the media or, or whoever else, it is an important right. And in today's day and age, Twitter is the place where you can respond. Oftentimes, the reporters do not even call you for comment. So when you're banned by all this stuff, Instagram ultimately banning me and along with Facebook and uh, late last day of September, I think, of, of 2020, I think if you want to know the truth, Facebook, I believe, banned me and Instagram like two days before Michigan charged Jack Berkman and myself. That tells you something. Because they don't want you to have any platform to respond to their allegations, to be able to debunk their allegations, to refute them at scale. The best you can do is send out a press release via email, which is then ignored by the media. And Trump did nothing about it. He did nothing about it. Could Vijaya be charged with a crime? I think so. I think so. I think absolutely could be because what you had was effectively uh, deception in order to suppress votes, which is what they accused me of. But I don't anticipate that will happen. I anticipate that what, in fact, will happen is that she will be on the speaking circuit in the elite institutions. She'll have board seats. I think she's already joined a venture capital firm as an advisor. This woman will, was was paid out quite a lot of money, uh, will probably be worth uh, a couple of hundred million dollars uh, inside of the next 12 months, uh, additional to whatever she's worth now, which may already be that kind of amount of money. And will be institutionally celebrated. Uh, her children and her children's children will likely have their pick of, if she even has children, I'm not sure. But if she ever does or if she does, will have their pick of whichever Ivy League or elite college or 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 place they want to go, whether it's Oxford or Stanford or the Ivy League or, or what have you. They will be uh, 
institutionally privileged, which is something that that I'm not. And frankly, you know, I, I enjoy not being because if you were if you were born into that kind of position, you would always wonder if you could have done it without that. You would never know if you could have done it without being anointed. If you happen to be very successful, you'd never know if you could have done it without having that stuff. You'd always kind of be unsure of that. So I welcome the opportunity to, to, to prove I can do it without all of that uh, institutional privilege. So again, Trump did nothing about all of this, which is why him now tweeting about new elections and all of this, it's just, it's crazy. It, it, it is uh, not happening. It, 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 it reeks of whining, frankly. I mean, we all understand. Look, this is all to say, notwithstanding whatever that is that actually happened in the 2020 election when we woke up the next day after Trump won on election night and then we said, what the hell's going on exactly? It's notwithstanding all of that. But what I'm saying is that this idea that he was just a victim and that there was nothing that he ever could have done to stop this from happening to him and that it only seemed to matter to him when it happened to him directly. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, Mr. Trump, you, you do, you do realize that you would have won by a larger margin had you had your supporters on the internet alongside you, but they were all banned. Mr. Trump, you, you realize that having Laura Loomer on the internet into the 2020 election means that you win more votes. Correct. You, you understand that having Alex Jones on the Internet means you win more votes. And what, what everyone has to understand here, and I'm going to kind of wrap this story with this, is that there was a, a mission statement, an unofficial mission statement that existed in Washington, D.C., in Silicon Valley, in Hollywood, in all of the halls of power. In this country, you have to understand about the United States that something like 70% of the wealth exists within something like 18 square miles of the country. Yeah, it's, it's like almost nothing. And so there was this understanding within these ultimate elite halls of power that they were not going to allow 2016 to happen again. That was the understanding. And, and you see, that meant something a little bit different to everyone. In the media, what it meant is that you were not going to let Trump have a platform. You were not going to cover his speeches like you did in 16 because people might agree with what he's saying. So you're not going to allow that. Not again. Within the crowd of lawyers and, and AGs and secretaries of state around the country who manage elections, well, what that meant is that you're going to do mass mail and vote this side or the other because you're not going to leave it up to people to show up on election day for a candidate they don't like, like Hillary Clinton. In Hollywood, it meant that you were going to uh, crack down from an entertainment standpoint. You were going to vilify Trump. In D.C., it meant that you were going to pursue this Russia narrative. You were going to indict people who had ever traveled to Russia. You were going to accuse everyone of being a Russian spy. And the media was going to help you do that. But, but in Silicon Valley, what that meant is that absolutely any success which was experienced by Trump in 2016, whether it happened to be imaginary success like the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, which was a big nothing, 
or whether it was real success, like Trump supporters doing the MAGA 3X trend and owning Twitter to, to mobilize people out to the polls on election day. You simply were not going to allow that to happen. And so within these institutional uh, cartels that exist, there was this very, very clear understanding. It wasn't even all that subtle. It couldn't be written in an official policy memo, but it wasn't all that subtle, which was that 2016 was not going to be allowed to happen again. And so, and so when something you know really remarkable took place, when something really uh, unheard of took place, like mass bannings of people online for no reason, really, when that happened, you, you, and you ask why, well, what, what, what was the explanation? But what was, it was very simple, never again, never again. And no, they didn't mean never again as, as it relates to the Holocaust. They didn't mean never again as it relates to 9-11. They meant never again as in never again would they allow an institutionally crowned candidate like Hillary Clinton, who was crowned president. It was her turn. Hollywood said so. Tech said so. Media said so. Government establishment, Justice Department, Comey, FBI said so. Never again were they going to allow a candidate like that to go into election day and just lose fair and square. That was not going to be allowed. And everyone, wherever their job was within that institutional power structure, was going to do what they had to do in the vein of never again. And so when you had a question like, well, what in the hell's going on? What Loomer is banned? Never again. Jacob Wool was banned? Never again. And they'd veil it slightly, you know, uh, like that Vijaya Gadai got onto Joe Rogan's podcast alongside Jack Dorsey. Tim Pool was there as a co-interviewer. And Tim Pool asked, well, what about Jacob Wool? Why'd you ban him? She said, well, he was using tactics like the Russians to affect the election. We were worried that he was going to affect the election. He hadn't really affected anything yet. He hadn't really done anything, but he stated that it was his intent to affect the outcome of the election. Now, she says, like the Russians. Now, here's the thing. I'm not Russian. I'm American. I am allowed to attempt to affect election outcomes. Last time I checked, but not according to them, because once again, trumping the Constitution, to use a, a term of art, or, or superseding the Constitution, or superseding history, or superseding the law, or the terms of service that weren't exactly violated, and all of that, superseding all of that, was the important theme of never again. And that's really what happened here. That's what it was all about. As you look at all of this, it was about never again. That was the that was the key uh, component of all this. Okay, I'm checking back in on the Avenatti thing here. Let's see if we have a, a sentence yet. Um, okay, let's see here. Back on the bench, Johnson to the mic. Uh, so victims are testifying. Okay, uh, Johnson is still testifying. We don't have the sentence out yet. Uh, Johnson just testified. This is the uh, paraplegic that Avenatti is the worst thing to ever happen to him. That's saying a lot because he's had a tough life. This is a guy who's. Um, both mentally ill and and um, somewhat intellectually disabled. Nice guy, very nice guy. But uh, you know he's had a tough, tough life, and Avenatti didn't make it any easier. Made it a hell of a lot harder. 
And that money's gone, by the way. I mean, he's not going to see it. You know, the county of Los Angeles, or more aptly here, their insurance company is not going to, well, it really was a check from the county, but then they bill the insurance. But they aren't going to write this guy another check because his lawyer decided to seal it. He's already tried that avenue. So he's in the wheelchair and he didn't get his four million bucks because of their misconduct. It's really, really beyond the pale. And he's had to deal with all this legal process and showing up at court and testifying and filling out affidavits and all of this for the last, you know, I guess now coming up on closer to four years than three even. You know, so because th this case was brought, I guess, March of uh, 19. Hard to believe it's been that long. So all of that. Avoiding 2016 became the common law. That's exactly right here, says uh, that, that's Woody username in the chat here. Uh, never again, as in our candidate will never lose again. That's right. They were not going to have an institutionally crowned candidate just be beat by some outsider. They were not going to allow that. Not going to allow it at all. Uh, somebody asked here in the chat, um, the Kanye West suspension, whether you like the guy or not, shows that Elon Musk has no plans for a mass unban. Uh, he has submitted himself to the advertisers. Well, I don't know yet. I mean, my understanding is we were told that mass unban was supposed to happen last week after the poll was put out. Look, before you all suggest, yes, I have put in the appeal thing uh, several times, in fact. So... It's in, um, and no word, no word. So it's um, it's unfortunate. The Predator DC count account has been allowed to, to to stick around. It's at Predator DC Show, but I really use it for Predator DC. I don't. I mean, it's a, it's an account for the show, for that program. So uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate. So continuing here on to the next story, we'll I'll check in on the Avenatti thing again here shortly. Uh, we, we, we talk a little bit about the crypto situation. I'm going to get into this on today's show. Uh, but before we do, um, Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, is now doing a PR tour. He did it. He's done probably, I mean, just that have been released so far, eight hours of interview. Um, ABC did two hours. They edited it down to like, I think, eight minutes of actual interview is what we got out of it. Um, the Andrew Ross Sorkin interview at that deal book summit was, as I even think back on it again, embarrassingly light and embarrassing amount of softball questions. It was a disgrace to journalism, a disgrace to Ross Sorkin himself, who I, I've, I've always thought was a bit of a strange character. Uh, he's one of these three names guys, once again, like Sam Bankman Freed. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of jokes in the name and all of that, but for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to get into that. Now, there have been some some situations where Sam Bankman-Fried has gone into these crypto, they call them Twitter spaces. It's basically like a Telegram voice chat or Clubhouse really kind of seemed to kick this theme off, but they kind of died because they were taken over by black supremacists, black nationalist types, and a bunch of other creeps and became really an unusable app. But uh, in these spaces, there's been somebody who's asked Sam Bankman-Fried some tough questions. This is a um, citizen journalist who does YouTube videos by the name of Coffee Zilla. I don't know what his actual name is. I don't know that he's ever released his actual name. 
he probably should sooner or later. I mean, it makes sense to have like your brand or whatever for a while, but, but at some point you kind of need to just put your name out there. But he has done some that I thought, well, he just seems like a lot of time for some little Nigerian scam or something, but it's his style. And, and I have watched his channel from the beginning and it's grown to millions of subscribers on YouTube, which is where he primarily operates. And I think his style has gotten better and better, but he has followed the situation closely. He has, I believe, some decent sourcing uh, of, of FTX insiders, I guess, former insiders now. And he really put the screws to Sam Bankman fried uh, kind of dropping into a couple of these voice chats and ask questions that in some cases leaded Sam, led Sam Bankman fried to just start stumbling and fumbling and leave the group chat. Like he asked him, well, what about this Dan Friedberg who was involved in a poker cheating scandal and the following cover-up? Why did you hire him as your chief regulatory officer of all the people you could have hired? And he didn't have a good answer. I mean, a possible decent answer could have been, well, you know, crypto is such a new space and it is so kind of fly by night. And the perception is that it's fly by night generally. And we're operating the Bahamas and not a lot of people wanted to move the, to the Bahamas that kind of the only people that we could hire were people that, in, that were involved in sort of, oh, traditionally seedy things like offshore, you know, online poker rings and stuff like that. That, that would be a, at least a an answer that that has some level of explanatory value. Nothing like that. He stumbled and fumbled and mumbled and and then said, oh, I have a meeting and left. But this was a particularly interesting answer uh, coming up. This had to do with the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried uh, said that he had, like he said, I, th- I believe eight minutes after the bankruptcy paperwork was filed, $4 billion came in to bail out FTX. And so he wished he hadn't filed it because eight minutes later, the, the money came in and it's just sitting there ready to, to bail out FTX customers. And he keeps saying FTX US is fine and they could be paid back today. Well, he was asked again about that claim by this CoffeeZilla here in this uh, Twitter spaces. Take a listen. Well, you said you had $4 billion like yep. that came in, right? Yep. Is that still, does that still exist? Was that ever real? Uh, I think it, uh, I mean, I think it, I, I don't know for sure, but. Okay, so the, the correct answer when asked that would have been, of course it was real and it's still there. Or of course it was real, but the offer has now been withdrawn by whoever sent it. But he starts stumbling here. There's a big delay. He starts stumbling and fumbling and, 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 and here's how it goes from there. Um, I think that some of those might. Um it i uh, i my guess is that that some of them might that and um i you know i i hope that the sort of relevant teams are doing whatever they can to maximize value for customers here just a total non-answer and indicative of the fact of of just how soft these other interviews have been because the first time that he's asked any question that's like remotely a good question to ask not a question to which he would respond, oh, good question, but a question that's actually a, a, a well-thought-out question, an urgent question. The second that that is asked, oh, he, he, he doesn't have an answer. He's mumbling and fumbling, and, and this has been the case consistently. And it, it points to the idea of it's like, well, this person's making themselves available for interviews. Now, I have seen some people in the press, uh, some commentators, uh, some parties out there saying, stop interviewing him. Don't give him a platform. I disagree with that. 
Let interview them all you want. The Justice Department will do whatever they're going to do. I've seen other people um, who have said uh, in response to this something very different. They they have said uh, they have said shut up, stop talking. Uh, I disagree with them too. I mean, there's his interests, but those aren't really my concern. I say let him keep talking. Why are you telling him to shut up? Uh, but. There is this idea that if he's going to be out there and he's going to be available, at least ask decent questions. And what we've seen out of so many of these journalists is they just say, Sam, what went wrong? Sam, you were on top of the world. How do you feel now? Just these kind of vague questions. Uh, instead of asking some of the questions that this Coffeezilla has asked, and you can go watch his full interview. It's on YouTube now, like... Well, you were providing uh, the financials in a fairly high level of detail to Forbes from Alameda. So how can you now say that you had zero familiarity with Alameda's financials if just recently you were sending them to Forbes? And it's like, who knew that Forbes, that's why you can never put too much stock now, I guess. And in, 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 I kind of knew this before, but in Forbes net worth calculations, because you now see that for Forbes, if they like you and if you're buying enough advertising with them or what have you, then all you have to do is send them a Google sheet that just says how much you're worth because you said so and they'll just publish it. Maybe I'll just send them a Google sheet and say, you publish my net worth on your Forbes 400. I'm worth $62 billion. Of course, I, I don't think I'd want that kind of press, but uh, it, it's, it's kind of remarkable. So the questions have been so bad. Now, uh, Maxine Waters, of course, I've talked about my close relationship with her from a lobbying capacity. She is the chair of the House Financial Services Committee. Um, and, and as a lobbyist, we have lobbied for clients in uh, situations where they come under SEC investigations, where they are in a space that, not crypto, but where they're in a space where there's SEC lack of clarity, uh, where they you know, already have an SEC action, but they want to prevent it from becoming a DOJ kind of problem. We have lobbied for clients in those kind of situations before to uh, to to basically ensure that people on Capitol Hill know their name and have a positive association with it. And and because ultimately what, what we have found, and particularly Jack over the past several decades, and you can see it so clearly here, I mean, this is such a selling point, really, this situation for the services that we offer, because what it shows is that lobbying on Capitol Hill, I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried, relative to the scale of his problems, did a, a, a tiny amount of it, frankly. He spent 600 grand this year on lobbying fees, and he spent 50 grand last year on lobbying fees. Whereas you have like Citibank spending four, five, six million a year on lobbying fees and another six million, say, on unregistered kind of pseudo lobbying, it just at the federal level, not even counting state houses. So it works. This is one of the greatest selling points for lobbying for people like this that, that have regulatory issues. They call it regular. We call it regulatory intervention. It's one of the, the biggest selling points of all. And um, but I can tell you, I mean, we improve the situation as much as it can be improved. As lobbyists, we can't take a situation where you have Bernie Madoff and nothing happens to Bernie Madoff. That's not what we offer. Some of what we uh, have been able to provide for clients. It's it, not at all. What we do is we we make the situation that 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 is bad stay bad instead of becoming worse or even worse or 
worse than we even thought possible, let's say. So it's about minimizing the bad. That's what we're able to do. Or sometimes getting people into the good if they're in one of those situations where they haven't necessarily had any wrongdoing or accusations of wrongdoing. It's just a question of regulatory lack of clarity or something. And and maybe we can get their situation clarified for them by having some congressmen send some letters. But what I will tell you is that just to put this situation in perspective, um, you have to understand there's some due process issues at play here. So, for instance, could prosecutors make a case out of like Sam Bankman Freed's tweets and say that's wire fraud because he said it was fine, they're not fine? They could. They could do the charging document today, they could arrest him today or arrest him weeks ago, and then they could have their 30 days to do the indictment. But that's not the strongest possible case that they could make. And it doesn't, it, it is not a, a case which would um, seek justice for people that have lost lots of money because it would just have to do with disclosures and it would be a case like that and it would be a case of two years in jail and it wouldn't get justice for them. Now, the problem is once they arrest him, the clock starts ticking on that 30 days, then they can indict on the other stuff because they only have a low level indictment at that point. The issue then becomes he'll be out on his own recognizance. Maybe he can flee. Maybe he'll be a flight risk. And of course, you know, they could always bring a superseding indictment, but with a superseding indictment comes other complications. So I just want to stress for everyone here. Yes, Bernie Madoff admitted it and asked to be arrested and the FBI didn't even believe him. The FBI said, we'll come back and arrest you. He said, please, they'll send the marshals. He said, no, no, just please arrest me now. He basically had to be begged to be arrested because of these kind of procedural situations. Now, what I'm telling you is that I think that the Justice Department is going to move here. It's almost certainly based out of the Southern District of New York. Caroline Ellison was spotted in New York City over the weekend. Um, and presumably she is testifying before them. Now, I got to say, I don't think Caroline Ellison should be given a total pass here at all. That would be unbelievable. I think she is going to do five, six, seven, eight years in jail on this, at least. Um, it's not going to be that she is, you know, given immunity or some damn thing. Not at all. Um, I mean, in, unless she was truly a stooge of some kind. But uh, I can't imagine that's the case. So you have that kind of situation here and and all of this. And so that kind of explains the delay. Um, I know most people reporting on this have absolutely no familiarity with federal criminal procedure. Federal criminal procedure is, is actually probably the simplest of all criminal procedures. As you go state to state, as I unfortunately have got to see up close and personal, um, it varies greatly. You know, when you talk about criminal procedure in courts all across the country, because they all have their own case law and they all have this kind of motion, that kind of motion and this procedure and that procedure, it varies a lot. Federal procedure is actually fairly standard. But a lot of the people that are reporting on this have no familiarity with with federal criminal procedure or even civil procedure or bankruptcy court procedure. And they're just reporters. And, and again, the problem with being a journalist is that so often today, journalists don't have any background of any kind of substance. They've never done anything in any of the fields that they're reporting on. Now, they say that's good because it makes them impartial. I say it's bad because it, it, it makes them report stories in a way that just utterly lack any sort of perspective. And and we get this kind of poor quality of journalism that, that we've become so used to. Now, 
Uh, just talking about this um, a, a little bit here and, and just some other details that have come out. Uh, David Sachs, who, who you may see on Twitter, he, uh, he was one of the co-founders of PayPal. He's on the All In podcast. He pointed out on that podcast, one of the few podcasts that I listen to fairly religiously uh, once a week. Uh, he uh, said, and, and it was very interesting, he pointed out that the New York Times was much, much harder on uh, the Coinbase CEO, Brian Armstrong, when uh, in reaction to some chaos in his in his workplace in San Francisco, um, caused by woke employees in the workplace. He said, no politics in the office. And if you don't like it, you can leave and we'll give you severance. Goodbye. I mean, he didn't say this is a right wing situation. He just said no politics in the workplace because it was causing all kinds of chaos. And he was lambasted by The New York Times. He was pilloried. They said this is the definition of white supremacism. I mean, it was like endless, endless barrage on him. And it was, frankly, a much greater barrage than that faced by Sam Bankman-Fried after all of this came out. And it has to do with that same kind of you know, question of institutional privilege. Brian Armstrong didn't come from the institutionally privileged background that Sam Bankman-Fried did. And thus, he does not receive the treatment from the media, which the media views as a sort of duty to uphold the, the, the integrity and the consistency of the institutional privilege, which they are part of, uphold, enjoy, share, and all of that. They came after him much harder just for saying no politics in the workplace, and they've come after Sam Bankman-Fried. The other thing is, and I think this is an important note, it's something I posted online, is that anytime you hear somebody call the FTX situation a run on the bank, you can be sure that they are either a shill or a moron. If they call it a run on the bank, then you can be sure that they are either a shill or a moron because they were not a bank. Coinbase is not a bank. Banks, uh, under the law, have an ability to some degree, as governed by all kinds of regulation, all kinds of laws, to take your deposit and loan it to someone else or engage in some other activity with your deposit other than leaving it there to sit. Coinbase does not. FTX certainly was not a bank. So you hear about runs on banks, which happen with some regularity. And the problem with the run on the bank is they might have more out than they have in. They call that, you know, fractional reserve banking or all kinds of other terms for it. But the bottom line is that FTX was not a bank. Therefore, they do not enjoy the liberties to go and lend out your money, lend it here, lend it there, put it in this token, put it in that token. It's not legal for them. So if you hear somebody say run on the bank, it, it, it is not a an accurate description of the situation and it's not even a situation which is even accurate in the meta sense as an analogy. It's just not. So it was not a bank. They didn't have any ability to do that. Uh, Maxine Waters issued a very uh, kind invitation to Sam Bankman-Fried to come testify. This is her invitation. She said here, uh, well, that's his response to it. Let me show you the the invitation uh, that, that she put out. She says, uh, she says, at SBF FTX, we appreciate that you've been candid in your discussions about what happened at FTX. Your willingness to talk to the public will help the company's customers, investors, and others. Well, the bankruptcy trustee didn't think so. He said, stop talking because you're causing more problems than, than anything. Uh, she continues, to that end, we would welcome your participation in our hearing on the 13th, next Tuesday. Now, that committee could subpoena him to come in. They could make him show up vis-a-vis -a, -vis a subpoena. 
But no, they just send this kind invitation over Twitter. And Sam Bigman fried responds. He says, Rep Waters in the House Committee on Financial Services. Once I have finished learning and reviewing what happened, I would feel like it was my duty to appear before the committee and explain. I'm not sure if that will happen by the 13th, but when it does, I will testify. How about make it his duty by sending out a subpoena? Really? Really? Are you kidding me? This is this is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Uh, I mean, this this makes a mockery of the system. Uh, it makes a total total mockery of the system. Now, you know that that was the exchange between the two of them. Um, one thing I will say about FTX is is that it, it is sort of a, a a combination of various financial scandals that have played out over the years. Um, you know, a blend of like a Galleon Group insider trading situation, a Lehman Brothers kind of uh, crappy assets overmarked, causing a House of Cards kind of collapse situation, and a Madoff. It's kind of a blend of all three because, you know, you have the Madoff of, of the pure Ponzi element here. You had the Lehman in the form of there was that element of why did they have all these shit tokens as, as items on any kind of a balance sheet ever. Uh, it makes no sense. And then you have the Galleon Group component. It's the most minor component in the sense that there was this idea that they were going to trade against the customers using the hedge fund. Um, and was it serving as a market maker or was it a hedge fund? What was it? Was it both? Well, let's front run our customers. You just saw that front running your customers is not allowed. There were a couple of Coinbase employees that that conspired to do that. They did it. They made about two or three million bucks. They were arrested at the airport before trying to flee to India, charged with insider trading, charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud, money laundering. So it's not legal to do because it's a token. It is not. Um, that is that much is clear. Now you know they could test their conviction at the Supreme Court later on, but as of now, it is not being treated as legal just because it's a token. Front running is not legal just because it's a token or legal just because they're in the Bahamas. Not at all. You know, I, and I think that one thing I have tried to convey to people and one thing that, that's been clear to me for a long time is that cryptocurrency is just software. That, that's what cryptocurrency is. It is software. What is cryptocurrency? As I see it, it is software. Uh, there is a question about how financialized uh, it should even be or, or, or how speculative it should be uh, once it is financialized. And I think that another thing that's very clear is that the bubble in cryptocurrency has been largely driven by the trend of getting the average person into crypto, whatever that means. It has not been a natural adoption of the product, an organic adoption of the product by the consumer. It has not been that. And there's no better proof of that than FTX's advertising, using celebrities and all of that. That's just one element of the proof. I mean, or, or how about all the bots? How about all the bots online telling you to buy this or buy that token or sign up for here or sign up for Binance or do that? All the bots, these immense bot networks, millions of accounts to promote this stuff. Facebook didn't do that kind of advertising to get people to sign up for Facebook. Not at all. Um, 
when they uh, went into uh, offering Facebook to the public, they had 200 million users, I think, inside of two months. And I think when they did it outside of Harvard, they had 250,000 users inside of 48 hours, active users who were spending an average of two hours a day using Facebook. It wasn't just because they saw, uh, you know, click here, bot, this, that, Tom Brady's doing it, got to go. It was not that. And the advancement of the price of these things has been because they're shoving in the dumb money. They're shoving in people to buy this stuff. And it is just, and it is just, uh, uh, absolutely not warranted in, in my view. Again, this, this stuff is software. Just software. Okay? that's What, what is cryptocurrency? It's software. Uh, Tim says, I saw Dave Ramsey call it FTX run on the bank. Well, I, I think that's probably a good faith misunderstanding, but it, it tells you, don't listen to him. He's, he doesn't get this. They, they, I mean, People were running. Yeah, somebody else says here, Ralph says, I, I think what they mean is that people were running to get their crypto, not the actual designation of it being stored in a bank. Well, again, the, the, the problem is that, yeah, they're running to get it, but it's, it's, a, it's a run to something, but it's, it's not a bank and therefore the money should have been there. Okay, there's also a question of, um, there's been this, this, this story that's been advanced by Sam Bankman-Fried over and over again that uh, Alameda had a margin position. It was larger than anyone thought. And because of that margin position uh, going bust and losing, well, then all these people lost their money. And there are people which basically they agreed to loan their balances to Alameda. And so their money perhaps should be gone with that position. But what about all the others? Now, the way that a margin account should normally work, first of all, it's not something in which the exchange and the market maker and the custodian of the funds are all essentially one entity or, or, or one group. That should not be the case. There's a serious conflict of interest problem there because, of course, on one hand, you know, you have the issue of the exchange wanting to maximize profits for its shareholders. That interest is not congruent with the interest of providing the lowest possible prices to the customer, which is why if you use, say, interactive brokers and you use uh, and you, you, you choose to not have um, your orders, your order flow sold, as it were, well, then if the cheapest order, if the cheapest price for your order, the best price for your order, let's say best price if that is the lowest transaction cost, the best price, the best execution is available at the NYSE, it'll be routed to the to the New York Stock Exchange. If it's available at ARCA or if it's available at a different exchange, if it's available um, in a dark pool, it'll go there. If it's available at Citadel, it'll go to Citadel. And they're all competing to provide the lowest price so that they get the order flow, so that they get to do your trade and, and make the spread, make the penny or the fraction of a penny that they make thousands of times a minute. Or, or thousands of times a second, even depending on how fast the business is that day. So there's a huge conflict of interest in having it at the same institution. It's why you have this all separated out in the rest of the markets. But if you have a situation where, let's say, interactive brokers, you've got a margin account with them. Somebody else has a margin account with them. 
Now, they'll have you know loans against the value of the securities. They'll be offered a certain amount of leverage. And at such point as that position goes to the point where it's close to getting to zero, the broker will execute a trade, will dump the position to liquidate the account before it has a chance to go to a negative balance. Now, there are situations where they're not able to do that because markets are highly correlated. Uh, rare events tend to happen all in kind of clusters with one another. We know this uh, from you know gouging statistics, from reading the black swan, from kind of a, even a finance 101 education. You don't have to be an MIT uh, level mathematician to know this. You don't have to be Sam Bankman Freed working at Jane Street to know this. And so sometimes they're not able to dump the position because the liquidity is not available. You get a flash crash. Maybe that risk happens overnight or over the weekend. And then markets gap down. So they never got to sell it at the stop loss price that they had to sort of uh, have for the positions. Well, what happens then? What happens if a brokerage firm in a margin account or a set of margin accounts cannot dump them before they go negative? Well, in that case, what happens is that the brokerage firm takes the loss out of their general account. Happens all the time. Then they have basically an arbitration board at FINRA that enables them to essentially sue the client to get the money back out of court in this arbitration board. They win basically every time and they get the money back. You can look up these cases. They're public in, in FINRA system. They have an arbitration board that allows them to go out and collect the debt owed to them by, by the brokerage client. It also kind of puts the client on the list so that other brokerage firms know. Okay, that's what happens. Now, what happens if the loss is so big that they cannot cover it in their general account? What happens is that then they don't go and, and go find someone else's margin account and take the cash out of their margin account. Those accounts are segregated. What happens then is that the firm files for bankruptcy. They file for bankruptcy. And uh, whatever other interests the creditors might have in that firm are then sussed out. But at no point does a margin trader within the brokerage firm going bad or set of traders going bad, at no point does that give uh, the brokerage firm permission to go out and then rob the other customer accounts. That is not how it works. It's not how it works. It is not uh, something which is allowed. And to the degree that there were certain other clients which gave express written consent to have their money lent to Alameda, and now Alameda's in bankruptcy, well, they can figure that out with Alameda. But that sounds like it was a very, very, very small number of accounts, and certainly no accounts in, in the FTX US realm. So anyway, that's how that works. You know, generally speaking, when markets are functioning normally, when they're functioning normally, uh, they will... Uh, simply liquidate the position, normal course of business, move on. If the client owes anything, they collect it. But when things are not normal, the brokerage firm declares bankruptcy. They don't go and rob the customers. That's not how that works. Just so everyone knows here. Okay. That's how that works. Um, so just, just kind of, just kind of talking about that here. Now, 
in the in the general sense of, of crypto, I mean, you look at NFTs, that was in that trend of, of just pushing stuff to the public. That was always just silly to me because you talk about NFTs and, and the reason that great works of art, for example, this pushes an art thing, are, are valuable is because there's only one. I mean, usually, maybe there's two, but generally there's only one of a great Picasso or a great this or a great that, uh, you know, a great uh, uh, Caravaggio or, or, or a great uh, artist. Whether they're actually great or it's a pump and dump in the art world, which happens, there's a great book on that called Seven Days in the Art World, recommended to me by Gavin McInnes um, on how that works. But that's kind of why there's some value there. And and that value is something that has existed um, for probably something like 1,500 years, maybe longer. I mean, maybe 2,000 years. And you see the Sistine Chapel and you see artwork that's been done over time. And it's something that is real and tangible and you own it and you can take it where you like. The second you call it a JPEG, well, that's okay too. I sometimes look at Google images searches for different Picasso paintings and look at them and move on to the next painting. But but then it's just a JPEG and I can click save as and I can save it on my phone if I'd like and set it as my wallpaper. But it's just a JPEG. That was part of this, this whole this whole thing about, uh, you know, shoving the public into all of this in, in every way that was possible. To put in perspective the, the crypto market right now, it's got the, the entire the entirety of crypto has a market cap of something like eight hundred billion dollars. For context, because it's hard to put kind of context around what is $800 billion, what does that mean? Uh, well, Microsoft uh, has a market cap of about $1.89 trillion. So that gives you some perspective. It, the whole market cap of crypto is about that of Microsoft minus $1.1 trillion. Um, All of the real estate in the world, it's hard to estimate what it's really worth, but all of the real estate in the world is thought to have a value right now somewhere in the range of 200 to 300 trillion dollars. So if you if you add up all the same thing for for debt, so all the debt assets in the world have a value something like 300 trillion is what's thought of. So so crypto represents a, a total value of about one half of 1% of all the money in the world. That is why the collapse of FTX has not been nearly as meaningful for the global markets as, say, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the collapse of Bear Stearns, um, even the collapse of, say, LTCM, long-term capital management. It just hasn't been as consequential as that. Frankly, even the collapse of Solomon Brothers or even the collapse of the savings and loans banks in mass in the uh, late 80s. That's why. Uh, it's just not that large of a, of a percentage of everything. And that's probably healthy. Now, among you know investors, what you see is that what somebody's percentage is in crypto tends to be something that is correlated with their level of sophistication. And that is to say that the more sophisticated an investor is, the smaller a percentage of their portfolio uh, is made up of crypto, is allocated to crypto. And that makes a lot of sense because from a simple math standpoint, let's say that the most maximalist of, of, of Bitcoin people are correct. Let's say Kathy Wood is correct and Bitcoin is going to be a million dollars a coin within two years. Okay. Or Michael Saylor or one of these people. By the way, go watch Michael Saylor's interview on Charlie Rose from the year 2000. 
That's an interesting interview from the year 2000. Um, that's very interesting. But in any event, you, you look at those projections and if those are right, well, you don't have to have very much of it anyway. Right? I mean, if you have, let's say, you know, $5,000 of, of, of Bitcoin today, okay, and, um, and it goes to a million, okay, let's say that that is, oh, you know, roughly speaking, 50x, um, you know, you're, you're going to do, you're going to do pretty well for yourself. You're going to do pretty, pretty well. That's going to be $250,000. And it's like, yeah, you know, but it could be $250 million. It's like, okay, right. And that's why you're an amateur and they're professionals because they can appreciate an astronomical profit and function in a way that is still realistic, recognizing that astronomical profits as a distribution of all profits and all losses are very rare occurrences. They can appreciate the statistical realities, and, and you can't. Speaking to, of course, the person who puts 100% of their money into cryptocurrency. That's what separates the professionals from the amateurs. The professionals think about pot odds. The professionals think about cycles. Professionals think about the quality of the asset. They think about the whole range of possibilities, whichever one they might be biased to or not. And amateurs work exclusively on on basically animal emotions of greed and fear. And, and that's about as high level as they function. And frankly, if they appointed uh, their dog as their investment manager, they would do better in the markets. Yes. Yes. No, they would. They would. If they just, you know, left it up to somehow their canine, they would do, they would be better off than, than if they did it themselves in, in a lot of cases. Okay. And so that's sort of the situation with all of this is, is that if it's going to be as big as they claim, as, as the, the, you know, some seem to claim, then, then you don't need that much of it anyway. That is why, for example, Sequoia, who very clearly did no due diligence, might have even been involved in some corruption as it relates to their investment into FTX. Guess what? They put 200 million into FTX. That fund that did it, that particular Sequoia fund, they've returned all the investor money already, and then some. They've already returned it, they, meaning they, they made it all back because their position sizing, despite chasing the trend, despite all the other factors, was one which was disciplined and stuck to the rules. Now, it should have been zero if they had done the due diligence that they claim to do and that they sometimes do. I understand from people who have actually raised investments from Sequoia, but it shows you, again, the difference between amateurs and professionals because the idea is that if you function as a professional in the market, even when you make errors, even when you make wanton errors, some cases, you survive. You don't lose it all because losing it all it, it, you know this, if you lose 50%, you got to make back 100%, and that's dip really hard. And if you look over the course of, a, of an investment career, it's it's not really even possible uh, a lot of times based on the relationship between time and money. So that's the difference. So, so you look at all of that, and, and crypto does not seem to be uh, valuable in attempting to replicate the financial system except... Um, using a blockchain. 
you know, so there's this idea that what you're going to do is basically take the entire existing financial system and then just use a blockchain for its own sake. So you've seen it in real estate. There's firms that say, we're real estate investment trust using the blockchain. Or you see it in art. We're an art investment firm, except it's all an NFT. Or you see it in banks. We're a bank, but we're a crypto bank. Or you see it in payment remittances. We are PayPal, except we use crypto. And that's what a Coinbase is. Yeah, you can send crypto to somebody if they let you. They review every transaction the same way that a PayPal does, the same way that a Cash App does, or at least they promise to. So that does not seem to be the usefulness in all of this. And the reason for that is really quite obvious because being decentralized has certain advantages, of course, and that's all the crypto people ever talk about, but it's also got certain disadvantages. Disadvantages in terms of bandwidth, disadvantages in terms of uh, economies of scale, and perhaps most importantly, disadvantages as it relates to speed. It slows everything down. And meanwhile, a system like Swift to send wires, again, there are the edge cases of people being banned from Swift in this set or the other, but it works and it works awfully quickly. You can send $100 million via Swift. And if there's no issues with the actual transaction, I mean, it's essentially instant. Not so with Bitcoin, not so with crypto. So there are disadvantages to it. Like there was a discussion about, oh, let's decentralize Twitter. These crypto people were saying we should do Twitter decentralized or, you know, BitChute, it's decentralized video servers. Okay, but if you want that to ever actually work at scale, what you're really suggesting is that everybody run fiber optic lines straight into their machine. And, and I don't mean fiber optic line like fiber optic line to the curb. I mean, you know, three, four inch diameter fiber optic cable right to the machine and that they be serving a tiny piece of every video that's on Twitter. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Never has. Um, and so it doesn't seem to really have value in terms of, of that. I mean, people say crypto is a ledger. It's like, yeah, okay. And, and what's a ledger? Ledger is basically a database. It's a database. That, that's what a ledger is. Whether you do it on paper, whether you do it on a stone tablet, whether you do it uh, on a computer. Swift is a ledger. There are a lot of banking systems that are basically ledgers. And the distribution of this ledger seems to be its biggest flaw in a lot of ways. Um, you know, another issue with that is that you, you, you can never really um, elegantly and quickly update the software. And yes, that's a problem in the real world. They say, that's the beauty of it. It can never be updated. Only Satoshi's version lives on and all of this. Well, in the real world, that's a problem. In the real world, that's a problem. If you can never update something for security reasons or other reasons. Um, and then, you know, lastly, there's this, there's this idea of, you know, oh, there's, there's only a, a 21 million uh, Bitcoin ever in, in, in creation. And, uh, and, and, and that's the, the value. There's this, there's this, uh, Scarcity. There's only 21 million ever. That's the greatest thing ever. Well, I mean, that's kind of like, a, as I see it, that that's a canard. That's like saying you you, you have um, uh, this piece of paper, and I'm going to rip this piece of paper into 10 pieces, and there's only ever going to be 10 pieces of it. 
Well, guess what happens? If we decide for some reason that there's some value in this piece of paper, then we're going to just cut it up into more than 10 pieces. Again, kind of a canard. The other problem with that is that you think that Bitcoin being computationally always more difficult is good because it, 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 it suggests there's going to be this idea of artificial scarcity. Well, you better have ascending prices for that to be the case. Because if you don't have ascending prices that are constantly ascending with the difficulty of mining the Bitcoin, then people are going to stop mining it in the order that they have basically availability of computers and low cost of energy and permission to do so. Because some places just are going to say, no, you're not doing that here. Um, and if they stop doing that at a certain rate because it's not, you know, the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, well, then it's going to become less and less liquid to the point of failure. So just a couple of breakdowns on this. And, and I just, I just want to be kind of clear about a lot of this stuff and, and, and get it out there. Um, I'm going to take some questions here in the chat before we wrap up the show. One of our shorter shows here today, I guess not that short. It's an hour and 20, just feels short. Um, Twitter can't take jokes seriously, whatever. Um, you don't have to worry about sending 2 billion ACH over the course of two months and having the value draw back day by day. No, that's true. And, and you wouldn't use ACH either. You'd use a Swift wire or an IBAN wire is another you know, parallel system. Um, there are other systems emerging. I mean, there's the International Bank of Settlements that settles transactions. Works pretty well. Um, and, and again, none of this None of this is to evangelize the old world financial system. There are tons of problems with the existing banking system. We could spend a week, five hours a day talking about those. I, I, it's not to evangelize the current system. It is just to say that those who choose to, to whitewash all of the issues with the crypto system, I think they're being disingenuous at worst and well, fraudulent at worst, disingenuous most of the time, and and or, or naive. That's the other issue. My OG account was banned before a joke within, uh, was a joke talking about Twitter there. Yeah, listen, guys, I mean, I, I don't know what really to do with the Twitter situation besides cross my fingers and knock on wood and all that. I, I don't know what to do. Um, Excellent analysis on crypto. Thank you. Um, again, guys, uh, you can support the show. You go to jacobol.org slash podcast. You do a recurring donation. You can do cash app at Real Jacob Ol. I know many of you do that. Um, most of you anom anonymously. Uh, MJ, you're a big supporter. Thank you. You've been uh, Your support's just been absolutely incredible. Um, I'm going to check in here on the Avenatti thing, see if we're anywhere close to a, close to a verdict here. Um, uh, we talk about this here. Let's see. Where are we at here? Five minutes ago. Avenatti's. Okay. Let's see. I think we're. Okay. We've got a sentence in the Avenatti case here. Um, Judge Selna sentences Avenatti to prison for a term of 168 months. That is uh, 14 and a half years. That's for the four wire fraud counts. And it includes 36 months for the IRS obstruction charge. That's pretty close to what the prosecutors wanted, which was 17 years. Judge says that Avenatti's 168-month sentence, 14 years, or 14 years rather, uh, is to run consecutive with his New York sentences, a, a major, major win for prosecutors. 
This is the Avenatti news out just now. Avenatti was let out by a marshal a moment ago. He appeared to be in good spirits. His final words before he left the courtroom were to Dean Stewart, uh, the lawyer he ditched during the jury selection to represent himself. I was there in the courtroom that day. He said, hey, Dean, be boisterous. So Avenatti sentenced to 14 years in federal prison consecutive with the other sentence. So um, that's going to mean that the, this sentence is not even going to begin until the other sentence is over. So Avenatti in for, oh, close to another 20 years in prison. Um, close to another 20 years, followed by supervised release. He is, um, Avenatti is, uh, how old is he now? I think 48 or 49. Uh, but this is a serious sentence for Avenatti in the case which I was involved in. Uh, he is 51 years old. So he is going to be uh, in prison uh, until nearly the age of 70 at this rate, uh, barring you know a pardon or some sort of change uh, to the actual law, which leads him to be released. Uh, but barring anything like that, Avenatti is going to spend uh, the better part of two decades now, it, it appears, in federal prison. Uh, he is currently housed in the federal prison, you know, other than this case, but normally up in, uh, in Oregon, a low security facility. But that is the sentence out of the Avenatti case, 168 months consecutive with the uh, other sentences, which I think add up to five and a half years or so. So it's very close to what prosecutors asked for. Uh, a, a very uh, serious thing. So we will not be seeing any of Michael Avenatti for for quite some time. Um, somebody says here, I don't support large sentences for white collar crime, but he had malice towards you. Uh, must be deservingly. Yeah, I, I, I don't typically either. I don't think it makes a lot of sense that, you know, I think the average money laundering case um, costs something like $7 million to bring more money spent than is than is actually uh, accounted for, recovered, lost in the first place. So I, I tend to agree, but that is what he's in for. So folks, uh, support the show here. I'm going to keep bringing you this kind of analysis and reporting. We'll be back Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern time live here on YouTube, podcast apps uh, thereafter, shortly thereafter. And uh, it's been great to join you today. We will be back Thursday. Support the show. Again, Cash App Real Jacob Bull, jacobbull.org slash podcast. You can also go there to support financially. You can send in your questions for the next show at jacobbull.org slash contact. And I'll see you on Thursday at 2 p.m. live uh, right here on YouTube.